Finally Enough is dedicated to cultivating a new way of living, going from busyness, achievement, stress, resentment, and perfectionism to stillness, flow, purpose, and peace. Here, soak up the beautiful truth that you don't have to strive to become enough. Instead, practice recognizing that you already are. Welcome back to Finally Enough. I am so glad you're here. Whether this is your first time joining us or whether this is not your first time and you're a regular listener, I am so glad you're with me today. So for those of you who are new here, I'm Anna Wickham and I help people overcome emptiness, anxiety, and feeling unsafe in their bodies through trauma healing and spirituality. And today I have a special guest interview. And this interview is with Jana Wilson. So Jana, let me give you a little backstory here. So Jana just kind of landed in my Instagram inbox. Um, it was her publicity company reaching out about this new book that's coming out called Wise Little One. And would I be interested in reading an advanced copy and writing a review? And let me tell you, I it was only a universe thing that I read and responded. Like, you know, you get these messages online of like different people who, you know, just you get all kinds of messages from people you don't know. And this was a message from someone I did not know. And I I cannot even tell you how this all came about, that it was just a universe thing that I, I saw it and I checked it out and I was like, I would actually really like to read this. Um, I'd be happy to provide a review and, and yeah, so I started reading and this is a memoir. So let me give a little background. So Jana Wilson is a emotional healing educator. She's a meditation teacher, retreat leader, hypnotherapist, and she, um, she now teaches people how to heal from childhood trauma and guides them through that process as you're familiar with that process, some of it, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, cause that's what we talk about a lot. And seeing Jana now and hearing her speak with the poise that you're going to hear in this interview today, it's just unreal to, to experience her energy as I got to in this, in this interview and that you will too. And also read the book and see where she came from and the the childhood she experienced. So I will let her tell you about that in the interview. But it was it was unbelievable. It was vulnerable. I found the book vulnerable and raw and real and also just a detailed look in a bird's eye view of how childhood trauma happens and how just kind of seeing every side of the situation, but you also get to watch Jana heal in, in real time, just with her growing up with her and watching her heal in the book. And then at the end, spends a lot of time talking about where she is now and and even the challenges she still experiences as an adult who's not only done her healing work, but who now leads other people through that. But we talk in our interview about how it's still a journey. It is always a journey. You've never arrived. So we talk so much in this interview about um, forgiveness. So we talk about, do you have to forgive? And how do you forgive? We talk about boundaries and codependency and a lot of different topics. But anyway, so I read the book. 
I couldn't put it down. And I, I provided my review, of course. And then I just couldn't stop thinking about having Jana on the podcast. And so I just reached back out to her and her team. And I, in fact, I think actually Jana might've mentioned it before me and it just felt like the right thing to do. And so I've never had an interview on this podcast and I knew this was the one. So really excited to uh, have this, share this vulnerable interview with you that I got to share with Jana, where we talk about childhood trauma and the healing journey. So um, really glad that you're here. So without further ado, here is the interview. All right. Well, today is a really special episode because this is my first podcast episode with a special guest. And I know this is the perfect special guest for the first interview on Finally Enough. So today I have with me Jana Wilson. And Jana is an emotional healing educator, meditation teacher, retreat leader, hypnotherapist, heart math facilitator, and founder of the Emotional Healing System and author of her recently released book, Wise Little One. And I'm so excited you're here, Jana. So thanks for being on the podcast and uh, welcome. Thank you, Anna. I'm so happy to be here. I just loved getting your your questions to prepare for this because it sounds like we have some things in common, which always feels good when someone's read the book and they can relate in some way and yeah, resonate. So thank you for having me. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Absolutely. Well, yeah, if you wouldn't mind first, um, so where should we begin? Wise little one, would you want to share a little bit about the premise of the book. If someone asked you, what's the book about, what would you say? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I. it's a journey. It's a memoir, prescriptive memoir, but it's the journey of childhood trauma, of how to overcome really adverse experiences in childhood. And of course, looking at it from the perspective that I look at it today and looking back, which I do in the book, really helping the reader see how mom and dad conditioned them, how they were conditioned by their family of origin, and how this intergenerational trauma can happen, right, through families. So the book is, was, you know, really a gift to my family, to because I, I consider myself a cycle breaker, and, you know, dysfunctional family. And, um, and so the book is, you know, me very vulnerably, as you know, sharing parts of my developmental trauma that led me to make choices that I didn't value myself, that, you know, I ended up having experiences that were um, further traumatizing to myself. It's kind of like we pick up where mom and dad left off and we start doing those same things to ourselves, or whoever raised us or, you know, the collective group of people who raised us, extended family teachers, et cetera. And we kind of pick up where they leave off. And so the book, it was my, you know, um, really gift to my family, but to the world too, to students and to people who find it to show that it is possible to overcome, to transcend and transform trauma and make, you know, I always like that saying, you know, make lemonade out of your lemons. Yeah. To say make lemonade out of your lemons is really an understatement. 
of what what I saw in the book of just what it was really, really difficult even to read, especially in the beginning, because I don't know that I've ever read such a vulnerable memoir before. And I've read many and it just, the vulnerability was, it was so raw and real. And when you went into the detail of your childhood, it's just really amazing to see where you are now as someone who helps other people break the cycle of trauma, because it just seems like a situation that would be impossible to get out of how alone you were in your childhood uh, with, you know, with your parents having their own, their own issues with, with their own trauma. And really kind of, do you feel like you raised yourself in a way? I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. Thank you so much for the acknowledgement and validation. I, it means so much to me, Anna, because you get me right. You get it. You get that. I mean, what I hear when you say that is clearly you've done the work to meet yourself so that you could be so vulnerable and share this with the world, right? There's like, I have no shame in any of those past experiences how was I able to raise myself? I mean, I certainly had a very devoted grandmother who was there for me. She was definitely a resource. I was very spiritual at a young age, as you know. And so I feel like that trauma, you know, it was the only thing I had to hold on to was this connection to the Holy Spirit, to Jesus, to, you know, in my early years. I mean, that's how I viewed it. And I had some very profound mystical experiences as a child and when you have that type of experience you know it's it it changes your life it opens your mind right the bible says be transformed by the renewing of your mind my little mind as a child was being renewed because i had a fervent desire to connect to spirit because that's where i found peace and safety and where was that inside of me right? Like, yeah, I connected in the Pentecostal church and the, you know, the tambourine and the singing and the worship and all of that. And I would, you know, go into a state of ecstasy, which we know is called slain in the spirit. These experiences were happening a lot because I was so frightened for my life that it was the only thing I could turn to, thankfully, right? Which is the truth of reality that is what's real this material world is you know spirit gives rise to the material world so i you know i you know the term people say oh they're an old soul well i remember hearing that even growing up like oh she's an old soul because i had to grow up so fast and you know since then i've learned a lot about soul ages and i do believe old souls come here, pick up a lot of um, challenges like I did to overcome. So that because they have something greater to give to the world. I end the book, if you might remember in the epilogue with a, a scripture where Jesus said, you know, when you've been given much, much is expected. And I, it makes me a little emotional when I say that, because, you know, holding space for people grieving and going through trauma. I mean, there's not really one person that's came on my path in 20 years, Anna, that I can't relate with. And some of them have had traumas much greater than even mine. 
But I think the gift of my trauma gave me that empathy, right? To hold space for someone to go to those dark places because I went there. And the only way you can hold space for them is because you've been there yourself. Exactly. There's a light out, you know, they're in darkness and they can't see that there is a light, you know, there is, you know, there's a lot of spiritual bypassing terms. One of them might be, you know, oh, it's happening for you, not to you. And I even use that in the book, but at some point we have to take personal responsibility for whatever state of consciousness or emotional state we're in. And as soon as I began to do that, you know, from reading the book, that's when everything shifted for me. I was no longer a victim. Yeah. Yeah. Would you mind going in a little bit into your childhood and your, your family and your parents? Because for those who are listening, who haven't yet read the book, so they kind of know what we're talking about. Yeah. So mom and dad were beautiful, you know, externally dad, you know, was handsome. He kind of looked like Elvis, you know, it's the fifties. They were best friends. Mom lost her dad. My father grew up in a very violent, you know, alcoholic family. They were best friends because when mom lost her dad, my dad stepped in and was her best friend and really supported her. And then a few years later, they fall in love and they marry. You know, they were, and we go back in time, you know, even psychology is a fairly new science and medicine, right? Like we're not talking, and certainly in the 50s, they weren't dealing with trauma and how to handle dysfunctional families and such. So they had their own, and and they married at 19. So being young, when you marry, and they had my brother at 20, and then me at 22, you know, their brains weren't even developed. And so I grew up in the South, in the Bible Belt, I grew up um, very poor, labeled white trash, um, a lot of stigma placed on our family, right, because of domestic violence and all the things that were going on. And I, you know, di I never digested. I definitely took it, took the, all of that on, right, and became, um, there was one question you had asked that you didn't see the word abuse in the book. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I, I didn't even realize that, Anna. And you asked me, you know, did I deliberately leave it out because I didn't resonate with it? Not intentionally. I feel like maybe because I'm writing from the perspective of little Jana, she doesn't really know she, the word abuse. She's being mm -hmm. abused, right? And um, yeah, I don't know. But that was a really good question. I was like, oh, I didn't even realize I left it out. But, yeah, yeah, I always tell my clients that my my dad grew up poor and he um, he always said, I never knew I was poor till the kids at school told me. Right. Because you just don't know the way that you're living. You assume everybody else is living that. Mom and dad were abusers. You know, they both were abusive, but I did not. You know, when we're little, we look at mom and dad like they are, you know, the king and queen. They are our gods. They brought us into the world. They know. And of course, however they treat one another, they treat themselves and they treat us, our siblings, we can get conditioned after that, you know, we model it. And, 
And um, my parents, my mother clearly did not value herself, neither did my father. And so they taught me not to value myself, right? To abuse myself, to be the abuser of myself. And yeah, the you asked me the biggest turning point, I think was 12 years old when I was pulled out of my body and had, you know, a near-death experience. I mean, I some people call it astral travel, whatever happened, I feel like spirit pulled me out of my body in a moment of extreme trauma and fear. You know, they're fighting, it's violent, you know, and I'm all alone. My brother's not there and I'm begging, dear God, you know, please help me and praying. And then the next thing I know, I'm feel a peace that passes all understanding. And that just flooded through my entire body. And I remember thinking, if I'm dead, I like it. <laughs> I want to stay here. And then all of a sudden I was like, where am I? What's happening? And I'm kind of like looking around and, and I see I'm like in, in the cosmos, like in star nebulas and galaxies. And, and I ask, you know, like, where am I? What's happening? And I'm told those are not your parents. I am. And this is not your life. That is not your life. This is. And then boom, I was back in my body. And, and, you know, that awakening was so profound, as you know, it gave me my voice, my throat open, my, you know, I became mm -hmm. what I call the dragon slayer. <laughs> There's an elephant in the room, we're going to talk about it. And so I was about bringing light. I think being a Sagittarius, Sagittarius born on the winter solstice, shooting the bow of truth, you know, I was like all about shooting the bow. They didn't like it very much, but. <laughs> and you mentioned about being uh, growing up in the Pentecostal church. And that's one of the things I resonated with you in the book is I also grew up in the Pentecostal church. And there was a part of the book where you, uh, you mentioned, I talked to God. He said, this is at church. I talked to God. He said, you don't have to be a Christian to go to heaven. Heaven is within each of us. God love all, loves all his creation and doesn't judge like humans do. And the people, the, the leaders of the church did not much like that from what you said in the book. No, it was actually my Sunday school teacher. So after I had that profound experience, I felt like I was like, I had the direct connect, right? I was connected and every question I would ask immediately, I would know the answer. And, and the answer always felt freeing, felt expansive, gave me peace. So, you know, the truth when it sets you free, right? So for me, it was truth I was hearing because I worried. I, I was smart enough to know at a young age, yes, I had it bad, but I also watched TV and saw tribes and parts of Africa and the equator and I thought, oh gosh, well, I have it at least better than them, you know, and I'm not eating dirt for lunch. And so I had this awareness that in some way I was privileged and then therefore it allowed me to have a lot of gratitude instead of being, woe is me, poor me, poor me. I began to feel more grateful for what I could create. And so I lived in my imaginary world a lot. And I talk about that in the book, which allowed me to manifest a lot of really cool things, pretty cool experiences, right? So 
I mean, especially for a girl in a trailer in central Florida on food stamps and, you know, ending, ending up, you know, with some of those experiences, I don't want spoil alert yeah. for the readers, but, but yeah, I, I went into Sunday school after that experience and I just, you know, I couldn't sit there and be quiet. I could not just blindly obey and not question. And so I said, you know, I'm, I mean, God told me that you don't have to be a Christian like that. He loves everybody. There's no heaven or hell. That's, you know, it's that kingdom of heaven is within Jesus. And I knew scripture. So I would, and they kicked me out of, out of Hopewell Baptist church. <laughs> they told you I, you couldn't come back. I couldn't come back. Yeah. That I was, you know, listening to the devil and I was blasphemous and, you know, I need to leave. And, and that was really painful for me because that was the only place every weekend that I did feel safe. And like, I had a place to go, I'd get on the bus and I was the only one in my family going, you know, my brother didn't go, my mom and dad sure didn't go. Dad was rarely there. So yeah, it was very Christian. of them. They just kicked me out. Wow. And so what did you do after that to like to stay? I, obviously, you don't need church to stay connected to God, but that must have been difficult when you were a kid after you got kicked out. What did you do to have so a safe place to go? Well, right. So mm -hmm. from 12 to 15, I still played Barbie dolls. I still spent a lot of time in an imaginary world some people might say it was disassociation and yeah, I was disassociating from, you know, the painful existence that I lived in. I had a mother who was clinically depressed. She was bipolar. Um, you know, I never knew what I was going to get when I got home. My grades were really bad. No one was there to, my mom dropped out of school in ninth grade, you know, so I, I was the first out of my family to finish high school, let alone go to college. <laughs> you know, it was like, anyway, um, I think, you know, cannabis, I talk about, you know, cannabis and, and my teenage years became a real way for me to, you know, actually connect in my heart and, and listen even clearer. Cause when I was high, I could hear like, okay, this too shall pass. You just got to get through this. You know, you're going to be okay soon as I got out of that small town and I went away to school, I no longer smoked cannabis. I didn't do any of that because I didn't need to, right? I didn't, I still had challenges in college. As you know, I was date mm -hmm. raped. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I still was, you know, searching, but by the time I was 20, you know, so it took some time, you know, eight years, but eight years really isn't a lot. And it is from 12 to 20, right? There's a lot that goes on, but by the time I turned 20, I was working for Maybelline traveling around the country and that book, you literally fell off, you know, the bookshelf at that book. I usually have it here and it is a Christian book. It was written in 1932 and it's, you know, out of print and, you know, it talks about the first chapter. What is the most interesting and important subject in the world? This was asked of a group of university students. The answer was oneself. To really know oneself is the most inspiring thing in the world. And said, your real self is a spiritual being all the way through. Your mind is spirit invisible. Your body is spirit material. 
you are a divine child and God is your father. So it had some kind of older, but it had a lot of metaphysics, a lot of teach. It, one of the chapters, law of attraction. I mean, 1905, wow. yeah, the book was like law of attraction. So wow. I wake up and then the memory of the experience at 12 years old becomes really clear again. It's kind of like it was vague. I didn't think of it much. It was something that had happened because of trauma. I didn't really, I wanted to push all that away, right? Mm -hmm. When this book came into my life, all of that started to bubble forth. Then I began to just have certain thoughts of, well, what if it happened, you know, for me? Then, of course, Brian Weiss's book, uh, Many Lives, Many Masters, came into my life, which changed my life because it opened my mind up to the mystery that we don't know what happens after we die, right? But the mystery that, you know, what if my soul chose those parents? And once I began to view from that perspective, through that lens, I began to see myself as not this weak, poor, white trash girl from central Florida, but a pretty badass soul. Mm -hmm. And and then if I chose it, uh, that father and that mother and those experiences, then what was possible for me in my life? What was I here for? I had some greater purpose and I needed to get focused on figuring out what that was. Yeah. Yeah. It was, wow. it was amazing. It was life-changing. You know, it was, it was, um, you said who would, you know, what would you say to someone who reads your memoir that says, I didn't experience that level of trauma? Right. That was a really good question. Yeah, many of the people listening to, I mean, all walks of life, but many of my listeners struggled to identify their childhood trauma because maybe on the outside, they were taken to church, they were taken to soccer practice, their parents weren't divorced, uh, their parents were not alcoholics. And so they've been told like, oh, did you come from an alcoholic home? No, I didn't. So what's wrong with me that I'm having all of these so, and that was definitely my experience as well. So yeah, what would, a lot of people would read this and be like, wow, my childhood was not, I mean, not to that extent. So how would you respond to them in terms of their trauma healing? Well, there's a few ways. Well, think about in the book too, where I share, like, even how I was being conditioned to put my dad's feelings first, right? That, yeah. oh, poor Papa, he would say, you know, come give me love. Like I was being conditioned. I have to give up what I want to make him feel so many people can relate to that. Mm -hmm. right? Like that's a common universal theme. So there are themes that even people who haven't experienced trauma like me that have read it, that said, I could still relate with so much because they're being conditioned to be caretakers, right? To care for their parents, to put their needs first or whatever. So there's archetypes of childhood trauma and parents who don't, you know, how we know that we love one another is we really, my grandmother did this. When I spoke, she hung on every word. She listened. Mm -hmm. She was present. She I knew she loved me. She touched every love language, right? Words of affirmation. She lifted me up. She, she was present. So parents who don't see or hear children, and we have sayings for that, you know, children mm -hmm. are to be seen and not heard. And I got that. I heard that a mm -hmm. lot growing up. 
So that is a trauma to a child. Under the age of seven, a child who is has a parent who really isn't present. My grandson will say sometimes to his parents and to me too, if we're on our phone, put your phone down and be present. He'll ask for it. You know, he's very emotionally intelligent. So I'm not seen or heard by mom. That's a trauma. And, you know, trauma is relative too. It's like saying my arms broke, you know, your fingers broke. My arms more important than your finger. No, that's being comparing, right? Trauma is mm -hmm. all relative to the person who's experiencing it. So parents who don't model good boundaries, that's a trauma to a child. Mm -hmm. They overshare about the other parent or they, um, you know, can't modulate their emotions and regulate them and they explode, right? That's a trauma to a child. Just, you know, even if they don't hit them or say anything mean to them, but they just are really angry and slam doors and stuff like that, that can traumatize a child. Mm -hmm. Um, parents who live vicariously through us, you know, the typical stage mom or sports dad and push, push, push. Uh, mm -hmm. you got to do this career. You've got to go this path. That's a trauma parents who, um, yeah. So there's different types of archetypes of parent parental trauma. Cause let's face it, becoming a parent doesn't come with a manual. Mm -hmm. Now we have people like Dr. Shafali, who's written, you know, conscious parenting and, you know, beautiful books to support and training coaches to become coaches, to teach parents how to be a conscious parent. So, you know, we're really making strides in that area. That's for sure. Absolutely. And I'm so glad so much of what you just described is coming into the conversation about parenting, because I'd say, I don't know if you'd agree in the, you know, 20, 30 plus years ago, that was the conversation about abuse and about childhood trauma. It was surrounding um, alcoholism, obviously physical or sexual abuse. And fortunately, we, and obviously those things are traumas. And then we're also getting deeper into the conversation about some of the things you described. So I'm so glad for that being more and more talked about because so many people struggle and never, I think about the people who never come to realize what they really went through in their childhood because it may not have been so apparent. Right. And, the, and then they judge themselves. I, yeah. You may have heard me share this on another podcast, but this is a client who came to me. She was in her early 40s. She had two daughters you know happily married just like why am I not happy what is wrong with me like I have a loving husband I have two healthy children like I can't find and of course I practice spiritual psychology so it's a combination of both in a hypnotherapy session I guide her back she remembers at five years old she was on a vacation it was the first time they had ever taken a vacation that she remembered you know which is is common most people mm -hmm. don't have a lot of memory prior to five. They're in um, by a lake. The lake is murky. She doesn't want to go in. Rather than listening to her when she's screaming, I don't want to go in and crying. They force her in the lake. In that moment, I said, you know, you're there. Now, what did the little girl, what did you make it mean about it? something significant just happened? And she said that my feelings don't matter. And then I said, okay, and what did you make it mean about the world? And she said, other people know better. 
they know better. So the reason why she was unhappy, everything she talked about was no one listens to her. Her feelings don't matter. She's unhappy. Like nobody cares. Like nobody, because she didn't, she got conditioned to not trust her wise little one. since she was disconnected from her emotions. Mm -hmm. And so, and she believed her husband knew. And then when he did made a choice that she didn't like, she was resentful and angry and passive aggressive. And she was always unhappy because she wasn't advocating for herself. So sometimes it's something that, you know, it's, it's in our subconscious and we need to, uh, the hypnotherapy, by the way, is the only thing that I found personally for myself and working with clients, other than doing some kind of maybe psychedelic assisted therapy that can help somebody really get to subconscious memory hmm. and get down to the nitty gritty, like the root cause of why am I in pain and suffering? You know, I had a great childhood. My parents were fine. They're still married. They never beat me. They provided for me. They, but it was something so innocent, so benign. She never would have pinpointed that event. But as soon as she connected with her little girl inside, the little girl showed her that first memory popped up. She's standing. She looked down. She could see the mud in her feet. She could see the murky water. They're jumping off into the lake. Everybody's having fun, but she wants no part of it. Now, had they had said, you know what? It's okay, honey. You just sit here and build a little castle and, you know, you come in when you're ready. She probably would have eventually did, right? She would have went into the water, but they didn't allow her that space. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you as well about forgiveness because i've read a lot online recently the conversation of you don't have to forgive uh your abusers or your your caregivers when and then there are the people that say you must forgive so how did you approach forgiveness or how do you answer that question with your own caregivers and do you believe that forgiveness is necessary for healing absolutely is necessary because it's the gift you give to yourself it has nothing to do with the other person mm -hmm. at all. And forgiveness is looking at a past experience and saying it happened, not that it shouldn't have happened. You wish it wouldn't have happened, hoping, wishing, dreaming, all of that, that it shouldn't have happened. It's coming to the reality. It happened. Now, what was the lesson, right? What was the lesson in it? It happened for me that I'm in earth school. I'm here to learn. Let me get busy. This is how we transform karma. It's a universal law. Most people suffer it. That's the first way you transform karma. Suffer. Woe is me. Poor me. This person did this to me. They stay in story. They can't forgive because it was unforgivable, they say. So they hold on. They eat the poison expecting the other person to die, right? That's saying. Mm -hmm. The second way, as you keep expanding your awareness and your consciousness and you're taking responsibility for your own life experience, you go, okay, it happened. So what was the lesson in my father being inappropriate with me sexually, with me, you know, him physically abusing me, my mother, my brother, all that my father did, what was the lesson? There was an overarching lesson. Oh, he didn't value himself. So all I had to do was go to the opposite. The lesson was he was teaching me, I need to value myself and not allow a man to treat me the way he treated my mother, 
or the way he, so early on, you know, I was really clear on my boundaries with him. I said to him, you know, the last time I spoke to him and I share that in the book that, you know, I can have a relationship with a relationship with you, dad, if you're working a program, but if you're not, I have boundaries. I forgive you for what you did, but it doesn't mean I'm breaking bread with you. It doesn't mean I'm gonna have a relationship with you because one of the people who, you know, that question, like if you could spend the day with anybody, who would it be? Mm -hmm. For me, it was always Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So mm -hmm. Archbishop took, you know, the South Africans, he guided them while Mandela was still in prison through apartheid, through, you know, his country being burned up, seeing his people being burned with tires of kerosene in the streets, like treated like inhumane. And he never said retaliate. He operated like a Gandhi, right? Like, a you know, in high integrity and, um, during the reconciliation trials, he wept a lot while they were being sentenced. And they said, why are you weeping for these people? They persecuted us. And he said, it talks about a proverb in, in Africa called Ubuntu, E-U-B-U-N-T-U. -U -U. Ubuntu means I exist because of you. This is the ultimate truth. If I hurt my you, I'm only hurting myself, right? And, but he said, always forgive never forget i think that's so true and i think that's where sometimes people get hung up that they think forgiveness means not having boundaries with that person or allowing that person into their life without boundaries or without conditions and those are just not the same thing absolutely absolutely yeah. like i have no desire if you you know i i i kind of this is the way I teach. I say to someone, listen, the first time someone trespasses against you, they cross a boundary, they do something that you become aware is out of alignment for you. You communicate it. You say, you know, when you did this thing, you know, I'll give an example. I had a woman recently. She was trying to hook me in to make me responsible for her feelings. Mm -hmm. And she said, I had canceled because um, it was snowing. I canceled an event with her and she said, well, when you're, when you're sincere about getting together, let me know. So that was a hook, right? Mm -hmm. She was throwing it at me. She couldn't manage her disappointment. And as adults, we have to learn how to manage our disappointments mm -hmm. and not put it on others because they're not responsible for us. I had no mm -hmm. intent to hurt her by canceling. You know, it was, a, it started snowing. It was anyway. So I, I knew, so I thought I'm gonna have a conversation with her. And, you know, what was your intent behind that statement? Well, you know, you weren't, you know, you canceled on me and you weren't sincere about getting together. I said, okay, that's not true. That's untrue. That's a story you're telling yourself, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. wasn't true. And you're making me responsible for your feelings and you're an adult and you need to learn how to manage disappointment and not make the other person responsible. So that doesn't work for me. So know in the future if you're upset about something, you need to process it and come to me and say, what was your intent? You know, when you did this, I told myself you didn't want to, you weren't sincere about getting together with me. Is that true? And of course I would have been like, absolutely not. Like, mm -hmm. so you let them know that doesn't work. You know, you give them grace. And then if they do it again, now you go, okay, remember we had a conversation about this before mm -hmm. and I had a boundary and, you know, so now I'm going to let you know, if it happens again, I'm withdrawing. 
from this relationship because you know it feels like you're not able to respect my boundary of you know I'm not responsible for your feelings I'm not interested in codependent relationship I'm responsible for me you're responsible for you you work out your stuff you come to me we have a healthy relationship that's co-commitment not codependency because yeah. codependency exists anytime two dependent people get together and hand off their feelings to one another there's a caretaker and a taker Mm -hmm. right takers are usually the addicts or the people who are I can't you know they can't function and the caretaker is the rescuer mm -hmm. right? that comes in. and and I was a classic caretaker raised you know raised by you know two two takers so I became their caretaker mm -hmm. I mean I would say to my mom when I grow up I'll take care of you and I was in my 50s I was still getting the pain of the lesson I am not responsible for my mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think codependency, people have a very specific picture in their mind of what codependency looks like in, mm -hmm. in a relationship, in a romantic relationship where one person is an alcoholic and one person, but it can happen at work. It can happen in friendships. It can happen in like the colleague example you just explained. So um, I think if we if we don't see that, then we can miss those times when other people are trying to make us responsible for their feelings or vice versa. So like you and I, you know, because I mean, we are in the helping profession. So people who are drawn to this profession in general, usually are recovering caretakers, mm -hmm. right? Because we want to help and caretakers mm -hmm. have this intent to want to help when we unpack it though, and we get deeper and deeper, you begin to see a lot of our, my behavior, I'm going to speak personally, was based on a survival, right? So it was based on, I got to, I got to meet your needs and make you so I'm safe. And, you know, it's, and it's so unconscious. And in this relationship I was sharing before, I, in, in hindsight, I could see she was alone. She didn't have a husband. She struggled financially. My heart went out to her. So I kept, you know, I'd take, we'd go out. I'd always take, pick, pick up the bill. Mm. I was caretaking because I told myself, well, I'm just caring. <laughs> I'm just thoughtful. I'm just, but really it was, you know, I, if I unpack it and I'm honest with myself, there's a little superiority in that. There's a little, yeah. I'm better. I have more. Let me give. Like you can't take care of yourself. Of so yourself. I must take care of you. Exactly. It's selfishness. And, you know, I, it's an ongoing journey. I mean, because this story I'm just telling you was less than two years ago. So I still get into these entanglements and I'm like, oh my God, you know, it's spiraling up all the time. Right. Likewise. Yeah. It's, it's always a journey. It is. And um, yeah, that brings me to another question I had for you, which is there was so much vulnerability in the book. You detailed a time in your life after a traumatic event with your parents that you uh, had a problem with bedwetting when you were staying with your relatives. Um, mm -hmm. You had, you also explained a time um, in your adult life, when you were with a partner that you felt you ultimately found out you were not really aligned and that that person maybe wasn't a kind person, I think is how you put it in the book. So how were you able to actually 
share these vulnerable stories again when you meet yourself so my formal training part of my formal training is in shadow work and integrating right not just healing integrating parts of myself and so you know the part of myself that you're talking about when I divorced and I had that one relationship mm -hmm. it was I was in witnessing a lot of it you know but I knew I needed to go there I needed to go to the bottom of what I had been trying to hide out in my first marriage and avoid. I needed to feel that dynamic of that extreme passion like my parents had. They were very in love to their level of love, but there was a lot of passion. And this person was my father. It was, he and I got together and it was, so the way that I could share that is because I kept taking responsibility. Oh, I'm still in when I was in Hawaii, when I finally got the, the soul slap from the teenager <laughs> right before that I was in so much emotional pain and there was a storm and I was out by the beach by myself and I'm screaming and no one could hear me because it was just so loud, the waves and everything. And, and I was crying and I just could hear spirit say, you know, just keep saying you're still healing your father wound. This is all about your father because this guy was a musician like my dad. He was volatile. He wasn't an alcoholic, but he had a lot of those same things that I found, you know, bad boy, interesting, mm. sexy. You know, I was like, oh, I here I am 47 years old and I'm feeling like I'm you know, back in my twenties, like I, you know, he was a little younger than me. It was like this exciting, but oh my God, it was heart wrenching. It just felt like I was, my heart was constantly in a grip, you know, in a vice. And, um, but you know, I, I had to meet the desperate, the old desperate woman that nobody's going to want the, the emotional healing teacher that doesn't have her shit together. She's a fraud. She's an imposter. Like I, you have to go to those darkest places and look in the mirror and say, there is a part of me that is an imposter. That is desperate. That's a fraud and, and work with it. There's a part of me. There's a part of me that is there. Sometimes I am, sometimes I am until it loses its grip. And once it loses its grip, you know, it's integrated. So somebody could mm -hmm. come along and go, you're a fraud. I saw you blah, 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 you know, losing your temper. And you're, you say you're an emotional healing. Yeah, I'm human. I'm wabi-sabi. I can do that sometimes. That's how you can share that stuff without fear of what people are going to think. Because if you accept yourself, you don't give a crap what they think. Mm. Yeah. And you mentioned in the very beginning of this conversation about shame and how the reason you're able to share those things is because you have no shame with them at anymore. And so you can share them. There's nothing right. anyone could say, or there's, it has no power over you. It'll still activate my pain body, that emotional, mm. you know, part of me that's accumulated from lifetime. I'll still get activated, but the practices that I teach, you know, really mindful, mindlessness, really not mindfulness. It's mm. just being the witness, right. From meditating so long is I can feel it rise. I can feel the trigger. I can feel the, and I can breathe through it and hold it and stay with it. And it's like a, I relate to it like she's having a, ten, a, tan, a temper tantrum, my little girl. 
And so I'm just like, okay, you know, I get it. Like internally, this person's really pushing your buttons. They're really triggering this experience really, but I'm here. We're okay. We're safe. And so I can regulate my emotional state. And then I can, once I'm, you know, in a more homeostasis, more balanced state, I can then look at what was it that triggered me? What kind of person would do that? What did I think they thought of me? That I'm a bitch, that I'm this, that I'm that. Okay. Then I come to the place. Well, you can be sometimes you have been in the past. Talk about abuser. Like that was a big one because I had to embrace that I'm an abuser because I was abusing myself. Mm, wow. And so, uh, you know, and I wouldn't be in a relationship with someone and this guy who was abusive if I'm not, a, I'm still not abusing myself. So he was my teacher. Our teachers are the ones that challenge us the most, right? That push our buttons. Uh, so I was courageous enough to just dive into this. One time we were in Hawaii on a different trip early in my relationship with this guy and he was so possessive and jealous. And I was having dinner with this famous Australian uh, windsurfer and we're at this table and they're all there. Kai Lenny was there, big surfers and stuff. And he drove by this guy I'd been dating and then started calling me. And I thought, oh God, he's going to embarrass me. He's going to come say something. So I jump up from the table and I leave and my phone butt dials my ex-husband and my ex-husband hears this conversation with me and this guy. <laughs> wow. I mean, you know, you sometimes we have to be willing to get so humbled, right? Down to the, like, my ex-husband was like, I am worried about you. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm out in the world getting messy, healing my shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so man. It's courage. You know, I was working with a client recently. She's divorcing her husband he was abusive to her anyway she was a caretaker she fell into like a pattern ended up ended up being intimate with him their their teenage daughter walks in and sees it she's humiliated I mean her daughter's disgusted you know they were happy her mother left the abusive father and then she's like and I'm like she calls me she's crying she feels shame shame says I am bad guilt says I did something bad she's feeling both mm -hmm, I'm bad mm -hmm. I did something bad what's wrong with me how could I go through all of this and put myself back and I was like you are a badass you inspire me and she's like what and I was like yeah you're you're allowing yourself to be human to get to the depths of you know clearly you needed to feel what you're feeling right now, the contrast to get really clear, what do you want? And that's yeah. how we learn, right? Yeah. Wow. That, yeah. Yeah. So that kind of brings me, so I, wrapping up here soon, what, what would you tell someone? So they read your book and this is their first introduction to a lot of the stuff we were just talking about a moment ago of, wow. I see some things in my own childhood. Maybe this is why my life as an adult isn't working the way that I expect it to. Where would you tell them to get started? What would you tell them? Well, so consciousness is everything, right? If we're not aware, awareness and consciousness are synonymous. If we're not able 
to cultivate a witness serving ourself, then we'll keep getting caught in the loop of the conditioning from the past, right? There won't be, it's the definition of insanity. Keep doing mm -hmm. the same things, expecting different results. So absolutely, without doubt, you have to accept. If you want to be emotionally intelligent and be able to regulate your emotions and not allow, be at the mercy of your own thoughts and other people pushing your buttons, you have to meditate. It's non-optional. Mm -hmm. It's foundation. If you look at, if you read like Emotional Intelligence 2.0 by Travis Bradbury, one of the best books on, on emotional intelligence, four skills, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship management. So the foundation of all of them lies in self-awareness. If mm -hmm. I'm not aware of what's going on in my internal world and able to regulate it on the fly, right? Then I'm a slave essentially to my emotions. I'm going to continue to suffer because I'm identifying I'm sad. I'm depressed. I am can't be depressed or sad. There's just a part of you that's sad and depressed and the inner child, people ask me, what is the inner child? It is your emotional self. It's just, you know, I don't relate if I'm feeling say anxious I don't say I'm feeling anxious. I say, oh, little Jana's anxious. What mm -hmm. am I saying or doing that's making her feel that way? Because we operate as a wounded adult often, right? We mm -hmm. go unconscious and we have conversations. And imagine if you're having a conversation, you're not in a relationship. I was talking to a young woman who's in her early 30s and she's like, I gotta get married. I gotta have babies. I'm on clocks ticking, you know. And she's like freaking out, and I'm like, "How does that feel when you keep telling yourself that?" She's like, "Terrible." I'm like, "Okay, so you're terrorizing yourself. Your little mm -hmm. girl's there, and she's like, and you're like, come on, come on, come on, like putting pressure, and it's it's too much, right? Like it's it overwhelms your system. So if you want to begin on a healing journey, first you have to get coherent." right? And coherency mm -hmm. happens through being present, through learning how to just get quiet, observe thought, not run with it, and keep coming back to the present. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Well, Jana, um, I am so delighted to have this conversation with you. And I know the listeners are really going to benefit from it as well. So can you let them know how they can get started finding your book and uh, learning more about you? Yes, I would love to. So people can find me, Anna, on JanaWilson.com. They can get the book on Amazon, of course. You can also buy it at my website. You can visit me at EmotionalHealingRetreats.com. We lead retreats here in Santa Fe and all over the country. And yeah. Great. Well, thank you again so much. Uh, I loved the book and that's why I was so thrilled to have you today. So thanks so much for joining us, Jana. Thank you. It was lovely to be here. I'm so glad you joined me today. If this episode resonated with you and you'd like to help more people find this content, I would love it if you'd consider leaving a review. Take care always and I'll see you next time.